We are starting the show, though, with a bit of follow-up to the invoking of the Emergencies Act yesterday. As you know, the Prime Minister took that move yesterday, saying there were concerns about serious violence for political and ideological gain. Therefore, the Act needed to be invoked. The Act was actually brought in in November of 1987. The legislation whose second reading I'm proposing today will provide the necessary flexibility to to respond to national crises without invoking the War Measures Act. It applies only to national emergencies and it distinguishes between four types of them. In broad terms, they are these. First, situations affecting public welfare and caused by an accident such as a massive chemical spill or by natural disasters such as earthquakes, floods or tornadoes that are of such magnitude as to exceed the capacity of the affected province to respond and to require special powers for an effective federal response. Second, public order disturbances that threaten the security of Canada and which are so serious as to be national emergencies. That was Perrin Beatty in November of 1987, reading the Emergencies Act. And Perrin Beatty, who is now the President and CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, is joining us on the line. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, when you think back to when you introduced the uh, act as the minister in charge in 1987, did the reasons given, did the invoking, did it meet the threshold needed to to invoke the act yesterday? We still need more information from the government about what exactly is the nature of the, the problem that it's dealing with. What, what powers didn't it have to be able to respond to this? Uh, for example, at the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor or the Pacific Highway or, or at Coots, Alberta, the government was able to act to resolve that without using the powers under the Emergencies Act. And the question is, what additional powers did it need to have, did it, does it believe that it needed to have, to be able to, to deal with the ongoing problem? So we need more information. It's clear that the government feels it was that it was justified and that these powers will enable it to resolve these issues more successfully. Uh, you mentioned the Coots border crossing, though, in Alberta, and that's one of the examples, exactly, that it was brought out as an example as to why this act was needed. But it's been dealt with. In fact, it was dealt with either uh, simultaneously or it was dealt with without the act. So doesn't that kind of prove the opposite? Well, and the same with the uh, Ambassador Bridge crossing, most important land crossing in, in North America, was resolved peacefully, without, uh, without anybody being injured or killed, um, without the act being in place. But the government would argue, perhaps, that, that when we're looking at Ottawa, where the centre of the city has been occupied by uh, a group of people for over two weeks, that special powers may be needed to deal with that. The important thing when we wrote the act was to say, government needs to provide the public and provide parliament with extensive information about why it's doing it, and there have to be proper protections there to ensure that people's basic rights are are preserved as well. And do you think that that threshold was met, or do you think Canadians have been given those assurances? Um, You know, you you could certainly debate whether or not it met what was a very high threshold for for the invocation of the Act. Um, But the government will make that that information available. It's required to do so as it tables the information in Parliament, and Canadians will be able to make a, a decision on that. The critical thing at this point is the government has invoked the Act. I'm certainly not uh, asking them to withdraw it at this point. 
the important thing is that we successfully conclude these other blockades and allow the economy to reopen and allow people to get on with their lives. We've heard a lot from police forces as well. We've now seen the chief of the Ottawa police resign, but we've heard from police forces saying that they needed more resources, that they couldn't stop what was happening specifically in the downtown parts of Ottawa, given the resources they have. But how does invoking the act actually change that or make it so they have the resources they need to do that to do that job? It doesn't necessarily um, if you look at the Ambassador Bridge again, where where this was resolved over the weekend, you had the presence of Windsor police, of other municipal police forces who were, were brought in, of the Ontario Provincial Police, and of the RCMP. You don't have to use the Emergencies Act to increase policing resources uh, to local authorities. Now, the government uh, is making the argument that, that there are special problems here. For example the trucks that are there, Uh, local tow truck companies have refused to be brought in to move those trucks and to clear the the barricade with literally hundreds of trucks involved. This legislation will give the government the ability to compel those companies to provide that service. Uh, They also are using this legislation to attack the financing of the uh, of the people doing the blockades as well. So uh, they would argue that these are additional tools that, that can be used to, to try to bring this to an end. There wasn't consensus from the premiers. There was a phone call with the prime minister and the premiers before he made the announcement yesterday, but not consensus across the country. Is that important? It's politically important. It's not legally important. Uh, that is, it's not legally required. Um, what is required under the Act is that, the, is that the premiers be consulted. But the decision is ultimately that of the Government of Canada where in a case where the emergency uh, involves more than one province. And as a result, then, the government is within its legal right to, to move ahead, notwithstanding what was uh, the position taken by any individual premier. What we're, I think we'll be looking for more information, though, is the government has indicated that that the provisions of the Act are going to be applied in a targeted way to specific geographies. Uh, that I understand if they're talking about the city of Ottawa, but they talked about the border. The international border runs across the country. There are uh, border crossings in British Columbia and in Saskatchewan and Quebec all across the, the, the country. Um, is it applying these provisions only to specified locations. Um, Similarly, it talked about airports. Um, Is it not going to take measures which will ensure that Vancouver International, for example, has all of the protection that that it needs? And of course, with the financial aspects here, where it says that the banks will have the right to freeze the accounts of individuals who they believe are involved in financing this, uh, does this only apply to people living in some jurisdictions or does it apply to anybody in Canada, and I think it probably applies to, to anybody. So um, we need more clarification from the government about what it means when it says this is geographically targeted.
And when you mentioned the border and you mentioned some of those areas, that's also been raised. And I know Civil Liberties has raised this as well, uh, suggesting that these are areas where a blockade is already illegal. We're not talking about a peaceful protest. We're talking about blocking a major piece of infrastructure, blocking a border, which you would think there are already those powers, aren't there, for the government, for law enforcement to, to go in and to stop it? Yes, there are. And, and indeed, that's what happened in the case of Coots. It's what happened in the case of the Pacific Highway. And it's what happened uh, in the case of the Ambassador Bridge. All of that was done without the use of the Emergencies Act. Um, but the government would argue that, that there may be additional measures that need to be taken to provide for security. What is clear, if you look both at the rail blockades from two years ago, and the blockades that, we, that we've been seeing the last few weeks, it's clear that, that our transportation and critical infrastructure are very vulnerable to sm- relatively small groups who are determined to hold the public to ransom. And one of the things that, that we did along with other business organizations uh, at the end of last week was to say the government under current circumstances needs to step up the protection of critical infrastructure to make sure that this doesn't metastasize and you don't see it simply popping up in other locations and crippling us uh, in, in location after location. Uh, some of the language that government officials have been using as well mirrors what's in the Terrorism Act more so, I think, than, than some of the passages in the Emergencies Act. Uh, what are your thoughts on that criticism that they're talking about it in that sense when we're not talking about the Terrorism Act, we're talking about this one? The, the legislation, the, the Emergencies Act, refers to the definitions of the CSIS Act. So the government has to refer to the CSIS Act in terms of what constitutes a threat that would meet the, the threshold. And I think that's why they're using uh, that sort of terminology. And it's a judgment call at the end of the day. Uh, it can be challenged by members of parliament if they choose to do so. And... Uh, it could be challenged after the after the fact as well if people feel that they're, for example, that it's cost them money. They can apply to, to be compensated for that. But um, there's a threshold that has to be met and it has to meet the terms of the CSIS Act. And I know you, you said as well, we're going to get some more information and more clarity on, on what went into calling this. But do you think this is an appropriate use of the Emergencies Act? Let me, let me choose my words carefully. I'm, I'm very sad that we've reached the point where the government feels it's necessary to do so. And I have no doubt about the sincerity of the government feeling that, that we have reached a point where local authorities don't have the capacity to, to resolve this uh, without the invocation of the act. I'm pleased that, that we have legislation like this that protects people's civil liberties. Uh, unlike the time of the War Measures Act, we haven't suspended the rights of Canadians from one coast to another. And if somebody wanted to go out this afternoon and, and organize a protest, they would be welcome to do so. Dissent is possible. Freedom of speech is still permitted. And the right to habeas corpus, which was uh, suspended by the, uh, by the War Measures Act, exists. Um, all, of that, all of that is good. Uh, we can debate whether or not the threshold level is met. Um, but it's clear that the government believes that it has. All right. Perrin Beattie, thank you so much for your time. I would love to talk to you more about this. We're out of time, so hopefully we can have you back on the show in the near future. But thanks so much for joining us to talk about this today. Anytime. Thanks for having me.
Thanks for being with us. Just a reminder, we will take you live to that news conference when it gets underway, scheduled for 1.30, so about an hour from now. Right now, though, we want to talk a little bit more about government spending, and specifically when governments tend to go outside of their jurisdiction. The reason we're talking about this today is I saw this tweet, and it was put out by the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, a few days ago, and the tweet is a screenshot of a vote in council and the vote is supporting the legal challenge against discrimination implied in Quebec's Bill 21. So this motion came up at council. It was defeated. It needed more than a 50% vote. And the mayor tweeted out, talk is cheap. When it came time to fund a challenge to Bill 21 and support minority rights, NPA elected councillors said no. Vote fails, no funds will be sent in support. Now, you might be thinking, why would Vancouver City Council be spending tax dollars to oppose Bill 21 in Quebec? I think a lot of people, myself included, are opposed to Bill 21, take issue with what Bill 21 is all about. But... I don't think that my civic tax dollars should be going to that legal challenge. And looking at the comments to that tweet, neither do a lot of other people in Vancouver. That got me to thinking, though, it can't only be happening in Vancouver. How much of an issue is it when civic governments don't stay in their lane. Well, joining me to talk more about this is Chris Sims, the BC Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Uh, What's your response or reaction? And I know a couple of other cities have looked at this as well, but the idea that a civic government would send money to support the legal challenge of a bill in another province. It's one of those things where it really highlights the issue of not staying in one's lane or allowing for mission creep at the local government level. And it's a very specific example. And so it's a good thing that it was able to be raised in such a clear manner. Uh, Before this, it's more of kind of... I would say amorphous uh, emergency declarations or rights fighting, that sort of thing. So, for example, you know, we'll spend tons of money sending a municipal politician to fight global climate change, for example, at some big fancy conference. Uh, they've done that both in Vancouver, they've done it in Victoria. I'm sure they've done it in other uh, city municipal levels. And so this is where we have to start looking. And exactly to your point, should your civic tax dollars be going to fight or endorse or support these things that are outside of a city government's purview. And we say no, um, that the city should focus on city-based issues. And even if folks disagree with us, we at least say, okay, fine, we need the tools to at least rein it in. So if we have, say, a municipal auditor general who can take a look at the spending and say, hey, are we getting good value for money? That needs to happen. And we need to have the ability to have city hall recall. So if we decide that our city councillors or our mayors aren't staying in their lane, we can have a by-election between elections and hold them to account. So we think that's the bare minimum. We need to have a recall and we need to have an auditor general in charge of this stuff. You mentioned an auditor general. Is there a mechanism in council or if not, do you think there should be one when it comes to civic governments uh, that actually lays out, here's what you can spend money on and here's what you can't. And it wouldn't be that difficult, I would think, to say if it's a legal challenge in another jurisdiction, another province, if it doesn't, I guess better clarifying, what is the mandate of a civic council? 
I think it's just been taken as granted what a mandate has been up until now. So we all kind of agree as adults uh, when we're elected to, you know, represent our wards or our districts, whatever term you want to use at the city hall level, that you're concerned about things like waste removal, um, pothole repair, making sure that pedestrian crosswalks are super safe, um, that sort of stuff. Typically, that's what you're worried about as a city councillor. But for the past 20 years, I would say, ideologically, people have been thinking a lot more like a city state of our more and more power is coming here, more and more tax dollars are coming here, people with good educations are concentrating their brain power here. And so they get kind of bigger than their britches and they start looking outside to say global issues. So this is where we're saying we need to rein that in. And even if folks do want them to take on global warming um, at a local municipal government level, then at least we need to have the tools to say yes, no, or maybe. And right now we don't. We only have elections, and that's not good enough. Uh, In this particular case uh, at Vancouver Council, it was Councillor Mm -hmm. Jean Swanson, I believe, who first brought the motion forward. It actually started at $100,000 that she wanted to give to take from the reserve funds and to give to this fight of Bill 21 in Quebec, and then said that she reduced it down to a measly 10,000, which I I feel as taxpayers, uh, nothing's measly about any amount of money. It's all money that's come out of the pockets of residents. It does. Every nickel of it does. And we can't let governments and politicians and bureaucrats start saying, oh, well, it's only $100 or it's only $1,000 or it's only $10,000. That's not their money. And if they start saying things like, it's oh, it's only this much, that means that they're taking for granted uh, taxpayers' money. That means that they're assuming uh, that, as a rule, that money should automatically be flowing to the state. And that's obviously not the case. Uh, the state, no matter what level of government it is, needs to make a very clear, convincing case for taking $1 from you. They should. They should have to make that case very, very clearly. And they're not. And so this is where we're saying, folks, um, if you want to help people fight certain laws in Quebec, nothing is stopping you. Well, maybe there is now. But before yesterday, um, nothing was stopping you from starting a GoFundMe uh, campaign to go and donate your money willingly to the to those causes that you find near and dear. But don't start forcing taxpayers, especially at a civic level, to start funding uh, your ideals on a national or international scale. Well, and that's certainly the theme of a lot of the comments from people saying, hey, you're more than welcome to donate your own money to this cause or any cause. I mean, there is no shortage of causes that are good causes. I'm not suggesting sure. this isn't this shouldn't be challenged. I believe it should. But again, I, I don't believe that it should be challenged using civic tax dollars from a completely a city in a different province. Uh, you mentioned, though, too, that kind of the, the when councillors or when elected officials tell us that, don't we always get told that, though, oh, it's only the cost of a latte a day. You're turning your back on the planet by by not giving up your latte a day. Hmm. Um, again, I think that minimizes uh, the value of your money and individuals' money and what it represents. Keep in mind, it's not just a dollar or five dollars or ten dollars. Um, that usually represents uh, an increment of your work or your investment, your time, your property. It's yours as an individual. And when an agent of the state makes an assumption about all of those things, uh, it has broader implications. And again, um, if people want to donate to those causes, that's 
fine. Um, you can go ahead and do that uh, within limits, obviously. Uh, but again, if a politician wants to campaign on that, to say, hey, elect me to be city councillor, and I will push for your tax dollars to go to fight what I believe is right in Quebec. People can then vote for that person and decide whether or not that's a good thing. But I doubt that that is what she campaigned on. (laughs) Do you think that having the Auditor General or that role will bring more accountability to a civic council? Yes, absolutely so. And that's because uh, good Auditor Generals stick to the money, and then they present those, that money in a report. And then we, as commentators and journalists and citizens and taxpayers, can all get in there and have the discussion, was this good value for money? Is this staying within the parameters of the city council? Are they staying in the lane? Um, and we can have that debate. But we can't just have that debate based on hot air. It needs to be based on good, hard data. And that's where we're saying, folks, we need a permanent office of the municipal auditor general that is replete with um, auditors, with uh, whistleblowers who can answer the phone call when somebody speaks up and says, hey, we're wasting money at A, B, and C City Hall here in British Columbia. We need to have a place to call, and we need to have a watchdog group. That is permanently, that's their job, is to, to count all the money and to find out where it's flowing to, and then we'll know. And then we can have a fulsome debate as to whether or not it's a good thing. But right now, we're mostly operating in the dark, Um, Vancouver is, yes, leaning more towards more audits, which is good. Kamloops had to call in the federal RCMP because of what was happening at the Thompson-Nicola Regional District and their misspending. It can't be so whack-a-mole. We can't function that way. So that's why we need a permanent and very strong office of the Auditor General, and then we can have those discussions. All right, Chris Sims, we'll leave it there for today. But as always, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for talking about this. Thanks for caring about it. Much appreciated. Well, as you've been hearing in the news, there was an announcement earlier today that the federal government is going to be scrapping that pre-arrival COVID PCR test for fully vaccinated travelers. Not getting rid of the testing altogether, though, but they are going to replace it with the antigen test. That was announced earlier today by the Federal Minister of Transportation. Let's bring in Claire Newell, the president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, Jill, today's a really happy day for the travel industry. We've been waiting a really long time for some of the biggest hurdles for our industry to be eased somewhat. The first was the advisory to avoid non-essential travel outside of Canada and knowing that that's going to be lifted on February 28th, along with all of the other changes is such welcome news. But the biggest hurdle was, as you mentioned, that uh, molecular, a PCR test that had to be done within 72 hours now being changed to an antigen test done within 24 hours of returning to Canada. That is just so much cheaper and faster and just easy, just more easily accessed. And so I, I, I will clarify it. Um, you can still have a PCR test done within 72 hours. If you have some RT lamps that you haven't used and you want to use those, if you've ordered them from, say, Switch Health or Azova, you can still use a positive test result. Um, That, again, has to be molecular, so a PCR or RT lamp. Um, If you have that positive test, it's good for 180 days and you still won't need to have to do an antigen. Um, But if you're like me and haven't had COVID, then 
And antigen test is probably the way to go. It's really, really a much more affordable choice than the molecular test. Are you surprised, though, that they made that move going from the PCR to the antigen? Because all along, we've been told that the reason an antigen test wasn't allowed instead of the PCR was because they're not as reliable. But now they've made this shift saying, "Okay, now we're going to allow these tests. You know, I I wasn't really surprised, Jill. I thought that this is what they would do, just given the nature of what we've seen around the world. I Part of me did think that we would go the way of the UK, which won't have any tests requirement. And I I was, I mean, it was only a slim part of me that, that thought that that might happen. And then they would just continue with random PCR testing on arrival, which they still, they are moving back to. So at the moment, vast majority of people, if they're, they're coming to Canada, will have had a paid PCR test that they're out of their own money. And then a, a test upon arrival at the Canadian airports. And so they'll be not doing that anymore. That that will go back to random PCR testing on arrival. But the good news that they also added was there will be no need to isolate when you're waiting for that random test results. Uh, I actually have one of our team who was coming back from the Caribbean and had a random test done in Toronto. And she's self-isolating right now. So it does affect people's lives, even if it's only self-isolating for 48 hours or whatever it may be when you're, you're, you're traveling and coming home. Uh, that's an interesting, I'm glad you brought that up as well, though, because if you, if your final destination is, say, Vancouver, and like your, your colleague did, if you're flying home and you get pulled in, say you're even coming home from the United States and you get pulled in for the random PCR test, it's not as though you have to isolate in the city. If you land in Toronto first, you would get the test, but then you can continue on your way, which doesn't that kind of defeat the whole purpose? Well, you would think so, but you're right. Uh, her test was in Toronto, but she was able to continue to fly back to Vancouver and just wait till she gets the results, which she hasn't received yet. Um, yeah, it does seem kind of futile, but you know, there's it, we've just seen so much through this pandemic. The travel industry isn't surprised by a whole lot. Um, a couple of other things that they did mention that's worth worth saying is that the Arrive Can app is still going to be used. Um, unvaccinated people still tested on arrival and they will need to quarantine. Um, But we are waiting for news about cruise protocol for testing and that's going to be announced soon. Good news for the cruise industry though, because we had been waiting to find out if there was even going to be a season for the Alaska, the Alaska sailings, which really start in April. Um, So it's, it's just right around the corner. So in coming days, we'll hear more announced what the protocol will be. Um, but again, it will likely be an antigen before going, going on board and uh, once you come off the ship. But we'll just wait to get clarification on that. And one other big change, uh, I guess this is just in perfect time for spring break, right? The, this all comes into effect February the 28th, Joan. Mm-hmm. The children 12 years and younger no longer need to isolate on arrival in Canada. And that is such welcome news, especially for working parents. And these kids can now go back to school if they're fully vaccinated. Right. And which makes a lot of sense because people were saying even it didn't it didn't really the rules were so different in the having to isolate. But if you actually had COVID here, you were isolating what for five days or when you didn't have symptoms. So it was a very, very different rule. Um, You mentioned the Arrive Can app. So just so people are are clear on that. So that is still something that you need to do. So with the rules changing, though, so say you're going on a trip and say you're in the States or you're somewhere and you get that antigen test, do you still need to update that or put that into your ArriveCan app? 
Oh, you've never actually had to up, uh, upload your test results into the ArriveCan app. You just have to simply state whether you have a negative oh. result. So it that really won't change. Um, there have been some people who've run into trouble if they have terrible Wi-Fi or for whatever reason. You can complete all the questionnaires in front of someone at customs. So if you don't have it done, it's okay. Um, but it's a lot easier, you know, for lineups, as far as I'm concerned, if you can do it ahead of time, do it ahead of time. One last thing. If we, I, I know we don't probably have a lot of time, Jill, but uh, I, since last Friday, I've been doing, t- oh, taking a look at the prices because as soon as we heard rumblings that these travel restrictions might be eased, uh, we started to get really busy. And as you can expect, across the board, like Puerto Vallarta is an example, all the packages increased by $300 per person. Hmm. Um, and the, all the popular places. So I, 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 we all predicted this. We knew this was going to happen. As soon as restrictions ease, prices go up because there's more demand. Um, we will also start to see the flexibility of the terms and conditions kind of dry up. So, you know, some, if you still see a package where you can cancel up to seven days prior or three days prior or whatever it may be, uh, jump on it if it's a deal that you can live with because the prices will go up and those uh, those terms will definitely go away back to what we saw pre-COVID. Wow, that's uh, interesting, interesting developments. I know they also talked about today that more Canadian airports will be accepting international flights. So that's being expanded, which will make travel easier for a lot of people too, I would imagine. Yeah, it'll make it easier because there's a lot of small communities across this country that just haven't had international flights and they were used to it. You know, there were flights going, international flights going into Kelowna and Comox and Abbotsford. And so that will pick up again. And that's really also welcome news for people who are looking to go somewhere. Because of that, we'll see not only Canadian airlines start to add more capacity into the marketplace, but we'll also start to see more airlines from around the world come back to Canada. Um, And that is such welcome news if you're looking to, you know, I I know that a lot of people are looking for the hot sun destinations really soon and for spring break getaways, but many, many other people are looking at bucket list trips or to Europe for the summer season or putting their their holiday on the books for, for winter break. And hopefully the airlines will start to put more capacity in there. You'll start to see cheaper rates. I mean, I'm hoping that the flight that I can bring my son back on from Helsinki will be a lot cheaper than the $1,500 economy one-way flight I sent him there on, Jill. <laughs> yes, I think anybody in that scenario would be uh, looking forward to that, uh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I did get a question. Somebody wrote in questioning about short trips to the States, and no change on that at this point. No. So- no, but it'll be easier. They don't have to have a PCR test and right. wait 24, 48 hours for it. They can do it, get the results in, uh, you know, 15, 30 minutes max and be able to, to get home. Just um, for anyone who's listening, antigen tests, I know that we have, a lot of people have the rapid ones that they have at home. And you just, you, there's nothing that really comes with it. You just find out if you're negative or positive. You can't use those for travel. Um, it has to be through a pharmacy or lab for travel purposes. It needs to have a, come with a document that has your first name, last name, the date and time that your, your antigen test was done. So just make sure you don't think that because you got the, you know, the pack of five, antigens that you can just use that to go on your trip and take the little test kit with you. You can't. You need a letter. Right. And so and that was my understanding. The only kind of self-administered ones that would be allowed for this are if you do say like the switch health or when you're doing it on a telehealth or with a, a practitioner on the phone, even though that's self-administered, that, that one will be allowed, but not like the ones you said, the five packs. 
Yes, and I have to tell you that on Friday when I heard the rumblings of it, I went on to Switch Health and bought three packages so that my family can go back and forth to go see my parents in Scottsdale and, you know, knowing that those antigen tests will, will be in a little bit higher demand. So if you also are an Aeroplan member and you want to have those, you will need them coming and going to a lot of places now. All right. So uh, all in all, and they did say today, too, they'll be relooking at things uh, in the future. So perhaps more change is coming, but that's a, a pretty big one than, I guess, the dropping of the PCR test. Yeah, you know, it's a really, really big day for the travel industry. And I do know that there's work to be done. I think a lot of people in the travel industry would like to see testing pre departure testing done away with altogether. I happen to be one of those people for people who are fully vaccinated. It'd be really nice not to have to do even an antigen test because you still have that worry like, oh no, what if I test positive and the weight, you know, and, and it, it is still a worry. So we're, we're not leaving um, COVID behind us. And if we're choosing to travel, you know, use all the necessary precautions, but a very, very big day for the travel industry here in Canada for sure, Jill. All right. Claire Newell, thank you. As always, thanks so much for joining us and talking about this. Thanks for having me, Jill. Bye. Well, as you just heard in that news conference, capacity limits in this province are being lifted tomorrow at 11.59 p.m. That means that things like movie theaters and sporting events and others where we had seen those capacity limits in place, in many cases at 50%, that is going to be lifted. That's one of the big changes coming. What is not changing is the vaccine certificate, the card that is needed to get into a lot of those places, as well as the indoor mask mandate that is staying in place in BC and it will be looked at again on March 15th. Well, what does this mean when it comes to restaurants and food services and all of those events that have been waiting for this announcement? Let's check in once again with Ian Tostenson, the CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Thanks so much for being with us. Absolutely, Jill. How are you doing? Uh, very good. How about you? Awesome. <laughs> I had tears in my eyes today. This is <laughs> This is probably the best day. This is better than Christmas. This is the best day in two years. Of all the times that you and I have talked, today I think we've really turned the corner here and headed in the right direction in BC. Uh, so what do you think will th have the biggest impact? And that restaurants were still pretty much, I know in some cases there was plexiglass and things in restaurants, but, but they've been pretty well functioning. What do you think will have the big, see the biggest impact from the lifting of these capacity limits? Yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a big one. Some restaurants were so small they could never maximize, even with plexiglass, their their uh, capacity. So going to capacity is going to be great. We know from what we see in parts of the United States that have reopened, there's a huge pent-up demand for people to get out. And, of course, if you're across the table now, people can mingle and say hello, and there's no restrictions uh, at the number of people at the table. And that's really interesting because we saw a lot of situations where there would be eight people or seven people and you know that one or two extra people would would be the veto vote saying you know what let's not go out so that's going to help and of course um what i was really happy to see was the lifting of the capacity uh, like for example in the stadiums and in, in throughout british columbia that makes a huge difference if you go from eight thousand people heading to a hockey game up to 16,000 people. I mean, that just incrementally is so good for our industry. So, yeah, I mean, basically, it's we're going to wear the masks for a while. We're going to keep the vaccination passports across the board for a while. People can get married, have, you know, large gatherings inside, outside. They have to wear masks. They can dance. 
But it's it's just such a different different world on Thursday when this all happens than what we've been in the last two years. And you mentioned the masks. So that's one of the questions uh, that people have been asking or have seen in response to this, the bringing back of dancing, but with masks. So are people expected then if they're going to a nightclub or on a dance floor or at a wedding and there's a dance floor that they stay masked while dancing? Apparently. Um, <laughs> it's kind of an Eastern European mysterious kind of dancing for a while. But I think the thing is, uh, this is not going to be forever. I mean, we're not down to... You know, years, we're down to weeks and months right now. As you as you pointed out, Dr. Henry's going to revisit this in March. And, you know, she's cautious, but for good reason. I mean, our industry, you know, the vaccination card kept our industry alive and open all this time since it was instituted. So I just think that we if were a little bit cautious, just a little bit more time. I know some people will write me and say, you shouldn't be in favor of the vaccination card. Yeah, we should. Because, you know, people want it right now. And more importantly, Jill, we have to we have to walk in concert with our guests that are, you know, they're going to need to be eased back into it. I don't think anybody's going to be too comfortable going to a dance floor, you know, full on no masks and let's just go for it. I think we're going to be a little bit sort of, you know, needing to sort of work our way into it slowly. Last time we talked and we were we were talking about the vaccine card and you said one of the issues can be that while it's in place, it gives mm-hmm. the idea that there is a, a level of danger or it it could give it could make someone uneasy thinking, well, this if this is in place, it must be because there's a high risk being in this facility. I got some email from people saying and actually, you know, there are other people who that are fully vaccinated, but are refusing to participate in the vaccination card system and are waiting for that system to be removed before they they come back to restaurants. So is it a balancing act there as far as trying to make it a place where people will come back for, for whatever reason it is that's keeping them away uh, to get them back into those restaurants? Yeah, I think for some people it bothers them. I think on two levels is that sort of signal we talked about. And then, you know, and then it might just be, you know, out of principle. I just don't like having to, I get emails from people saying on principle, you're wrong because I don't, I shouldn't have to prove this. Um, it is what it is. I mean, the majority of people in BC, they they really liked it. And in fact, our business was really strong when the vaccination card came into play. So, um, but like I said, we're not sitting here saying have it forever. I just think that we need to just see it through for a little bit. I'd like to see it definitely gone before June. And, um, and we have tourism uh, starting to happen in the province, which is really exciting again today, cruise ships. So I think, you know, all these signals point to it that I would see that masks um, and vaccination cards for sure will will be eliminated. So people should just let it go for a bit. Just let it work to the system here. We're almost there. We we truly are. It's not worth having the debates and writing emails and getting angry. British Columbia and your listeners have done an amazing job at getting us to this point, and I think we should just enjoy it and then move forward to the next stage. Uh, because other provinces, and I think that's one of the, the criticisms, has been that even if you're not lifting it right now, you're going to keep this vaccination card in place. Other provinces have at least given an end date. We have a date where it's going to be looked at again, but we don't have an end date. And maybe it doesn't matter because we've certainly had other milestones and other things. I mean, wasn't it last September? We were all supposed to be back to normal and then everything changed again. So it's not, it's not as though having an end date means it's, it's written in stone, but it, it does seem a bit strange that VC doesn't have that 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 goal, whereas other provinces have either eliminated it or are planning to. Uh, Does it concern you that we're going to see it a bit of a patchwork now of different rules from province to province? Not too much. Um, 
So our, you know, our June 30th is when it expires. I mean, but you know, it could be extended as well too. Um, but I, like I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's going to end sooner than that. Um, other, yeah, what's going to happen a little bit in like in the Okanagan in the Kootenays this weekend with family day weekend, we're going to get, you know, some pushback. Uh, we had that happened last summer from, uh, you know, tourists from Alberta, you know, some people come here and go, it's my vacation. I'll just want to live my life the way I want to live it. But most people, they understand what's going on. Our culture is different. I mean, our culture between here and, and Alberta is, is a lot different on, on some of these things. But I've said this before, is that um, we, we've been open longer than anybody else in North America. And it's because of the things like the vaccination card and masks that have been able to accomplish that. They can't sit in Alberta. They can't sit in Ontario, Saskatchewan. So, you know, I think our system is better. It's been, it's been hard for some people. I get that. But um, I'm not concerned about that. I think we should be really proud about where we are and for our businesses in particular that have been able to operate. I mean, in Ontario, they're still doing, they're opening, but they're at 50% capacity. We're today at 100% capacity, which I think says a lot about BC. Uh, Do you think, too, are you getting the impression from people that where we are now with 90 plus percent vaccination rates, uh, at least what I'm seeing from people online and people emailing is it's not as though there's a huge concern if you're fully vaccinated and going into a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Obviously, you know now that everybody in there, unless they're skirting the rules, everybody in there that's eating or drinking is also vaccinated. But I don't get the sense from people that if that was to be lifted, there would suddenly be this unease that there could potentially be people in there that are not vaccinated. I mean, that's their choice to make to, to put themselves in that position. But if you're fully vaccinated, I don't think you're that concerned about getting really, really sick or going to hospital. So it seems like we're at that stage of the 90 percent plus vaccination yeah. where mingling now dropping it wouldn't be putting people in a position where they would feel unsafe. I agree. I think the uh, the trigger will be the numbers today. Dr. Henry was showing is that the hospitals are starting uh, rates or um admissions or people in hospital is going down. That's what I think she wants to see. I think she wants to before, because you can imagine if she goes, okay, we're going to drop that. And if you've got 800 people in hospital and, you know, people dying still, some people are going to go crazy and go, you know what, that's wrong. So I think, I just think she needs to, to, to see that that's under control. Cause I do agree. I mean, if, you know, if you're vaccinated and you're hanging out and someone's not vaccinated, it's their risk, not ours, you know, because we know that, and I think there's enough evidence now to suggest that Omicron is quite mild. I think she just needs a bit longer time to prove that through. She's very, very methodical in those things. But I do agree with you, Joel. I think, I think we could probably do this. And I think, um, but again, you know, what happens in the event that we're not right? And then we have to put this back in place again. And we're, like I said, we're talking weeks here. We're not talking years of doing this. So I think, we're, you know, I kind of agree with Dr. Henry. Let's just be a little bit prudent for a little bit longer just to get us there, and then we're, we're locked and ready to go forever. Uh, do you anticipate there's going to be a big push now as far as uh, weddings in restaurants and, and places or, and other kinds of ceremonies or, or celebrations that have been postponed uh, because of this? There is a scramble. I was talking to um, a winery in Kelowna right now, and they're just literally double booked. They are booked the whole summer. They can't do capacity. And so I think... Uh, I think that's true. I think every every patio that's large enough for every restaurant that has some extra room, uh, the wedding planners, and it's so nice to see them being back in business now. They're they're full on. I mean, there's so much demand for people to want to do that. And, um, you know, I know in our own family, we had someone pass a year ago, and now we're feeling really good. Well, now we can have a celebration of life that's not so restricted. So all those things are going to come to life right now. And I think it's going to be a very busy time for 
for BC. It's going to be a little stress on us because we're a little short in labor at times, but we'll get the food to the table guaranteed, but it's, um, we would rather take the business uh, than as opposed to, you know, where we came from the last couple of months. You already uh, answered my last question. It was going to be about staffing. How are we doing as far as our restaurants and all these venues ready for this? We're going to start a campaign soon that that's going to speak to parents to get their kids out and get a job in restaurants. That's a great first time experience and a great way to make money and sociability. And then we are working with the government that's going to help because I know there's, there's a lot of people go, you know, that's a great idea because now, you know, as we the, today's announcement really helps that we're working with the government on uh, advancing and reducing the time it takes to get skilled foreign workers. And that's going to be a big deal. So I think the next six months we should be able to have uh, a, a good impact. But I just don't want to keep talking about it. We actually want to put some things into action. So the social campaign should be quite, quite fun. And like I said, we'll be talking to parents about getting their kids out and getting them in the workforce and, um, and, and get this uh, back on track a bit here. All right. Well, Ian Tostenson, it's uh, nice to talk to you on a day with some positive news oh, for <laughs> the industry. So thanks so much for joining us, and we will talk to you again soon. We sure will. Thanks, Joe.